I'm Rabbi Jonathan Singer, and I want to just say we're so glad to have you here and be together to talk about a subject that uh, is really an essential subject for all of us, but a subject that we often uh, don't focus on or pretend doesn't affect us. I want to start with this uh, uh, intention from the Reimagine group. Why are we here? It's a big question about life and about death. Perhaps we start a little smaller and first ask instead, why are we here in this place together right now? We're here to create a brave space. We're here to explore big questions with a shared spirit of curiosity, humility, and empathy. We are here in community as citizens of San Francisco and the Bay Area. None of us is alone. And together we can help inspire one another, ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities to engage in meaningful conversations about living and about dying well. We're here to reimagine end of life, to envision a world in which we are all able to reflect on our life's path and to prepare for a time when we won't be here, but to live fully right up to the end. We're here, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Now, I know that many of us have different thoughts and perspectives about what it means to reach the end of life. I also know our culture sometimes, which is a lot about acquisition, doesn't focus so much or get us to stop and focus on what that last moment is like and the moments leading up to it and how we envision what might be afterwards. I was really inspired, though, the other day to hear Barbara Bush once more teach us a lesson as she got ready for her end of life and gave that message from her family to our country, saying, you know, I'm stopping all treatment and having my end of life focused and at home with my family. And there it was. It was just that short little pithy reminder that there's another way and an intentionality that one can bring to this essential moment. Well, that's one person teaching us, former First Lady. But here we are in this house of worship that welcomes everyone to have people representing their traditions, traditions filled with wisdom and wonder and blessing, whoops, to teach us and share with us, thank you so much, and learn from each other. So I want to welcome our three panelists. We have... Iftikhar Hai, who is a founding member of United Muslims of America, and he directs their Interfaith Alliance. And he's really willing to be engaged and to talk across traditions and integrate traditions and make himself available. And we welcome you here tonight. The Reverend Mark Stanger. How many years have you been at Grace Cathedral, Reverend? <laughs> helping to lead one of the most important and impressive houses of worship 
in this city that does so much good. We're glad for your leadership and to welcome you here as well. And then Elaine Donlan, who comes as the assistant minister of the Buddhist Church of San Francisco, and who has so much wisdom to be, bring to us. She's been teaching the essentials of Buddhism since 2008, and a city where um, the Buddhist population is essential to the fabric of, of, of life here, and then informs other traditions and helps us to renew ourselves. And so we're grateful to have you bring your wisdom here this evening. The program will be as follows. We've asked each uh, leader to share a bit about their tradition. How does their tradition look at the end of life, its path? What happens when people die? And to take a moment about life after death. And so about five minutes of peace or so. And then we want to engage with you in conversation and questions. Now, you're in a synagogue, right? There's a saying that if there are two Jews, there are three opinions. Iskar <laughs> just said the same thing to me about Islam, and I know it's true of the other traditions as well. So we'll hear perspectives, but it's okay for you to have questions and engage us and perhaps disagree with us as we talk about uh, that path. We have to share what we say in our tradition, our Torah, our wisdom. And so I'm so glad to have Iskar begin. Thank you very much, Rabbi Singer, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, just a little bit background about myself. I came to this country 50 years ago from India, and I was born accidentally in a Muslim household. I say intentionally accidentally because most of the people tend to stay in that faith and die in that faith. So that's why knowing the truth about life after death, when I came to this country, I was just 25, and I lived, I, I went to a Catholic school where it was in Bombay, India, talking about life after death. And then I remember a saying of Father D'Souza, who used to say, money lost, little lost. Money lost, little lost. Time lost, much lost. Heaven lost, all lost. So then, you know, being a Muslim, we are supposed to believe or must believe in the Christian and in the Jewish tradition. So the, the Torah and the Bible is as much holy to me as any one of you. And we try to drive wisdom and compare it to the wisdom in the Quran. So, uh, one of the cardinal principles of our faith is life after death. Number one is having faith in one God and believing in the prophets, believing in the holy scriptures, and believing in your power of doing right or wrong. God has gifted you with that kind of a strong sense of right and wrong, and so you've got to make a choice. Day, day of judgment. And then, where do you go? This is life after death. So right from the young age, I was told by my mother, she was not that religious, but she said, you know, just, just think about one thing, that this life is temporary, and you're going to be gone one of these days, you know. 
So try to do good so that people will remember you after that. And remember there is a life after that. And Father D'Souza in, in Catholic school also said the same thing, you know, there is life after that. And when I came to this country, I, I was living with a Jewish landlady. She was the daughter of a rabbi. Um, her name was Mary Michaels. And she lived on 430 Missouri Street on Petroda Hill. I ended up living with her for four years as I was working on my master's. And sometimes we would talk about, and she treated me just like a son, believe me, you know. Wonderful lady, and I still have the fondest memories of her. She's saying, you are over here for a purpose to study and, you know, try to be, be nice. And, and I said, you know, well, and sometimes sometime I would pray, sometimes I would not pray, sometimes I would fast in the month of fasting, sometimes not. And then I said to Mary, my friend, I said, Mary, sometimes I feel myself a little bit guilty. He said, oh, don't worry, nobody has seen God yet. <laughs> you know, he said, he said, don't worry then. He said, I don't know sometimes. He said, but there is a culture in our own tradition that you do something and you are preparing to meet your final meeting with your Lord, you know, and that has always been in, with me. Uh, we really believe, you know, if you do good, good will come to you. If you do bad, bad will come to you. Not only in this life, but there's something, sometime when you don't get compensated in this world, there is an angel who also records some good deeds and bad deeds, depending on how much damage you've done to the other party, right? That you will be asked for that after you die, you know. And again, after that, they say if you're a... If you are, all the good acts are much more than the bad acts, and then you go to, and then you go to your Lord, you know. And it's not in, in kind of a body of flesh, you know, because the body has some needs, you know. And we are spiritually connected, this is. And just the company of, of somebody, your creator, itself gives you a total mental or physical orgasm. Orgasm doesn't need to have only a sexual side, you know. There's also a such beautiful side to it that when you're one with your Lord and with your Creator. I mean, so, so that kind of a thing was always a part of my faith. And another thing is this, you know, there is a a kind of a pluralism. If somebody believes in God or doesn't believe in God, it's, it's none of your business. As long as you follow the law of the land. You know, this country is full of laws and rules and regulations. Nobody forces you and forces you to go this way or that way. So, I mean, most of the time, I'm supposed to mind my own business, you know, and do good to my neighbors to my wife, to my children, my, my grandchildren, and to my family, you know. And whenever you do good, you are really at peace in your heart. And you sleep soundly too. So the, the thought about dying is very much a part in the Islamic faith. But again, I'm speaking as a reformed Muslim, I would say, because there is somebody like reformed Jews, right? So there is also so many schools of thought, really. So many schools of thought. Not everybody thinks like me. And, you know, uh, there are 
people who read in a very fundamental way and transfer and translate it in in that way too. So I am really looking forward to speaking with all of you after after this end of the lecture. Thank you. Pass it on. You have two Jews and three opinions. Christianity has fractured itself into a big mess. So um, we've got a lot of opinions. Um, in the Episcopal Church, we keep one foot in the ancient tradition and one foot stepping forward into renewal and into adaptation. So that's kind of my general coming to be. Tonight, my thoughts are mostly about rituals around death and also about the, um, the paucity and thirst and kind of wandering in a wasteland of our culture around how to celebrate death. Um, in the authentic, not everyone agrees with me either, but I'll say what's, yeah, anyway. The way I understand our authentic tradition, um, it's kind of like that old movie, what was it called, where the kid says, I see dead people. Um, that um, we have a symbolic death to the ways of... Um, uh, the normalcy of civilization, one Christian scholar calls it, and instead um, to lean toward justice and toward a radical um, countercultural way of being in the world, firmly in the world, but not of the world, for the world. So when a person is baptized, welcome into the Christian family, it says they have died to their old life and they're living a new life. We believe in death that that's mirrored, that's completed. We've finished that journey. Um, I'm indebted for most of my renewed understanding to a Christian from another tradition named Thomas Long, L-O-N-G, and he wrote a beautiful book called Accompany Them With Singing, Accompany Them With Singing, The Christian Funeral. And it's from an ancient document after uh, the beginnings of Christianity, where someone said, well, well, how do you Christians, how do you deal with your dead? And, and so there's a document where someone describes the practices from the death in the home or wherever, and then the body is carried in procession, and we accompany them to, with singing, first to the church for the last time, and then to the place of rest. So it's this three-stage processional action that the community has. The modern um, writer, uh, you know her, Anne Lamott in Marin County, she said once, um, when she suffered a great loss of a friend, she said, for a while I believed the great palace lie that grief is to be done privately and quickly. And she said, that was a lie. Grief should be public and take as long as it needs to take. Um, our rituals around death help grief. Um, last anecdote, and then I'd be, love to have something more interactive. Um, often, because of our culture's lack of trust in ancient religious tradition and general human practice until the last 50 years about what you do when you have a dead person, a body, and how 
you're going to dispose of the body, but in a way that corresponds with the life that was lived. Um, so often in this modern culture, I might take a call, hello, uh, we'd like to have a service at Grace Cathedral. Oh, because uh, someone died. Oh, uh, where's, what funeral home are you? Oh, oh, they died three weeks ago. We buried them privately. And, and now we want to have a celebration of life. And I said, oh, uh, okay. And it just seems like a great chance was missed to come into the community to, with your beloved and carry them with singing from one stage back to the faith community for support and prayer and commendation to God and, and to, the, to eternity, and then to, to really carry them to rest, to help you let go of them. So um, I think we have a lot of work to do in Christianity to reestablish our best traditions. Lastly, most Christians run around as Neoplatonists, which I, I, to me that means, well, we've got a body, but you know, it doesn't really matter. You have a soul, you have an eternal soul. So let the body go. That's really not Christian. We're pretty big on the body, birth to death, um, uh, the imagined future eternal life somehow relates very directly to our bodily life in a renewed way, in a mysterious way. So we're not that quick to just think of the body as a snake skin we slough off so the soul can sparkle. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you, Rabbi Singer. Thank you, all of you, for being here. Uh, I am from a Buddhist tradition called Jodo Shinshu, which um, originates out of Kyoto, Japan, which is where our mother temple is. Uh, I explain Buddhism in a nutshell as a tree. At the trunk of the tree are the fundamental teachings of the historical Buddha, which is impermanence and interconnectedness. And then those major branches are the three major movements and the hundreds of different traditions of when Buddhism spread. Um, and so you could go to one Buddhist temple, go to another Buddhist Dharma center, and you wouldn't recognize they are, what their practice is, is radically different. However, what we all practice is the, I mean, what, we're, what we all believe is the trunk of the tree. How we express that trunk of the tree is radically different based on country, based on the three major movements. So. Even so, uh, it, you may have someone uh, from another, another Buddhist tradition here, and, and my ritual will be very different from theirs. There's a good chance of that. Um, however, the fundamental teachings we all share, which is the fundamental teaching of impermanence and interconnectedness. And I think for us, when this whole reimagining uh, was coming coming around. Um, we, we gave a Dharma talk uh, to our congregation um, a couple weeks ago around it, and I really liked the handouts, actually some of the booklets that we plan on using, and we were talking about, it's an updated version of what we've been doing. But we are constantly talking about impermanence in our Buddhist tradition. We believe that the this idea of impermanence is what, well one, everything and everyone is impermanent. We don't last forever. And this, this preciousness in, in that knowledge um, has a profound impact on the fact that we are all profoundly interconnected. 
And that really informs how we live our life. And I, th I, I thought that, if I may, just read a short... Uh, in our tradition, we, um, we do what's called a pillow service, and that could be done, that's one of the rituals, either before death, when someone's really close to death, or immediately after death. And it's usually chanting a sutra, uh, giving a short dharma talk, just really bringing people together. And then we have a funeral, and the funeral could be with the actual body, or it could be a cremation, and the ashes are there on our altar or the onaijin. Um, and then at the funerals where we always read on white ashes, which really kind of gives a nice synopsis of, of the whole teachings. Um, and then from there, uh, we have a, another ritual at the cemetery or interment. And then we have a 49-day memorial. And then after the 49-day memorial, we have a one-year memorial. And then after the one-year memorial, we have a two-year memorial, a three-year memorial, a seven-year memorial, ten-year memorial, and every three days, uh, every three years thereafter. And the idea of the memorial, from a superstitious perspective, old, uh, I think, misguided Buddhist, is that you do this, these memorials for the person who's died, but we actually do it for the living, because do we really die? My father died two years ago, and he is so with me, and I actually probably feel closer to him now as I'm thinking of my whole life and the lessons that he, he taught me. And so that interconnectedness is, is just so precious and, and prevalent still, just so, so real. And so if I can share briefly um, on white ashes. And this is what we read at the end of all of our memorials, funerals. In silently contemplating the transient nature of human existence, nothing in our world is more fragile and fleeting than our life. Thus we hear of no one sustaining human form for a thousand years. Life swift, swiftly passes and who among us can maintain a human form for even a hundred years? Whether I go before others or others go before me, whether it be today or be tomorrow, who is to know? Those who leave before us are as countless as the drops of dew. Though in the morning we may have radiant health, in the evening we may return to ashes. When the winds of impermanence blow, our eyes are closed forever, and when the last breath leaves, leaves us, our face loses its color. Though loved ones gather and lament, everything is to no avail. The body is then sent to an open field and vanishes from this world with the smoke of creation, leaving only white ashes. There is nothing more real than this truth of life. The fragile nature of human existence underlies both the young and the old, and therefore we must one and all turn to the teachings of the Buddha and awaken to the ultimate source of life. By so understanding the meaning of death, we shall come to fully appreciate the meaning of this life which is unrepeatable, and thus to be treasured above all else. Reimagine. Sometimes I think reimagine means rediscovering or remembering uh, things that we've forgotten and given up. And I, I worry that our, our secular focused culture overlooks the traditions 
and 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 hopefully part of this process is to come back and drink from the well again and see how these traditions that really uh, uh, bring wisdom to this uh, holy moment in our lives might be of support as we go forward. Our tradition draws from both Moses and Abraham. It goes back to that early uh, levels of the biblical tradition where we're first of all taught that we're supposed to live with a sense of radical amazement, that this life is amazing. And what a gift that we have, as my kids would say, what a ride that we get to be a part of this if we're living especially in a place of peace, which might be our good fortune. But Moses knows He's told by God that he's going to die. That part of life's journey is knowing that it's finite. And yet, how do we find the radical amazement around knowing that we can pass on our blessing, our love, our hope, our wisdom and teaching, that we live on by the good that we do in the world. And that if we can see this end of life not as a curse or something to be ignored, but as part of that radical, amazing experience, we'll have a very different approach to it. Our tradition has another piece of wisdom literature called the Talmud. And in that rabbinic literature, there are many stories about rabbis being visited on the day that they're dying. And they're surrounded by their students and their loved ones. And maybe they're sharing a last memory or hope or they're being comforted and told how wonderful they were and the good that they brought into the world. I think as we know more about the end of life today, and we kind of start to leave a corporatized death uh, program where everyone died in a hospital surrounded by who? By medical specialists and not by the family, that we now know that people hear as their, uh, uh, the last sense that they have is hearing. And to tell people to share love, to maybe die at home, and to have um, words of blessing around them, is such a powerful thing. Judaism teaches to do as much as you can within reason to hold on to life. But then at a certain point to say no, as Barbara Bush did, I- I've had enough. It's okay. And now I'm going to go on that last leg of my journey in a natural way. Maybe comforted, as we talked about last night with a few psychedelics. <laughs> but to be on that, that journey. Um, there's a t- teaching in that Talmud where this, the guy is dying, the rabbi is dying. And the students are there and they're praying and talking. And the wife of the rabbi realizes, this is a 2,000-year-old text, that their prayers are keeping him alive and he's uncomfortable. And so at a certain moment, she says, stop, stop, and no one listens to her. And so she then takes the pots and pans from the shelf above and throws them to the ground. And in the crash, he dies. Because they stop and they look to see what happened. And the Talmud says, she gave him a last blessing. So the idea that, that it's not bad to die is another part of the Jewish tradition. But then I'll agree with you. San Francisco, oi gewalt. We do whatever we want here. And sometimes that's not the best thing, to ignore a wisdom that says, you're a mourner, don't go back to work. You need to stop and acknowledge loss. 
And funerals should happen as soon as they can. And you're not supposed to abandon that body. It's supposed to be respected and loved. The body is seen as holy and the spirit. Um, and that the funeral is the beginning of that mourning process and not the end. We try to go to burial as soon as possible. And, you know, it's very interesting to me, Judaism embraces what I call natural burial. Uh, and we've buried differently over time. So I have some material out there for you, and some of it's wrong because it's changed. We don't reject cremation anymore in many of the Jewish community. But we want this burial to be in the earth or to be released, the body to be part of eternity again, because the tradition recognizes that, in a sense, is a kind of, of resurrection because we're back as nutrients back in the earth again, that physical part of the self. Just as a spiritual part of the self lives on with the people we taught and perhaps with, with God, and, and when we'll get to heaven maybe in the questions. But that idea of going right away and saying, I've got to acknowledge I've lost. I've been spending all this time caring for my loved one. Now someone needs to care for me. These traditions want to wrap you in that blanket of support and help you take those next steps through emptiness, through loneliness, and through a sense of, well, why am I living? To get back to radical amazement. That's what these traditions try to do. So thanks for joining our conversation this evening, and we'll turn it into a conversation now, and I'll give myself a hand. <laughs> so I'm going to walk around and take questions and our leaders and teachers can give responses and also engage each other. So what do you want to know from these traditions? What's a question that you have? They were only able to touch a little bit in their introduction, but here they are. Sure, then I'll go to him. Can I ask a question? So the I always wondered about the immediate burial, like within 24 hours. Is that rooted in... Um, text or that idea of being buried immediately? So it begins with the Abraham and Sarah story. Sarah is the first Jewish person to die in our tradition, and the family gathers even though they're angry at each other, right? Death is a better way also bringing people that together and bringing healing in families, that they gather together and they bury her right away. And I think probably it was connected to, uh, first of all, health, but also connected to um, to healing and to, to, to mourning. And so it, it starts in, in that tradition. It's not required 24 hours. We allow uh, it to be delayed for people to get there. But I think there was a sense that people died longer over time and then wanted to really be able to turn attention to the family. And we don't want to turn the body into an idol, right? And we want people to accept death. And so Jews will have people participate in the burial. So you're not buried by a stranger, but you also are accepting that this loss happened. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my question is, I guess it's two questions, kind of. Um, the first question is, um, how do you talk specifically to your congregation about death? Um, and then the second question would be, how do you talk to them about grief? Okay. 
Don't debate who takes it. Go ahead. Mark, you're up. <laughs> you know, if we were like the old world culture everywhere, again, until 50 to 100 years ago, you would be going to funerals regularly. You would show up when your third cousin died or when your neighbor. And so death would be interwoven into your seasonal appreciation of life. So you didn't need like to go take a seminar on grief or because everyone was doing it. But, but now we just point and click and you know, decide when these things will happen. And, and as Rabbi Singer said, you know, we don't take time off work to grieve. Um, you walk by walking. I, I, I mean, this is how we learn to do these things, by just doing them. And there's no operator's manual anywhere. So unfortunately, we've been inhibited by culture and uh, other kinds of messages. So um, I don't, how do I talk to, I, I talked okay. enough. Well, I mean, let me add something to this. Uh, before, the, in the Islamic tradition, before we were born, we were one with God. The soul was there. And then we take the, the example of how Adam was created. Different part of the earth going to form his body, right? And God asking the angels to accept Adam. Everybody says, okay, accept one angel, the fallen angel. They say, I'm made out of, out of fire, and this one is made out of earth. So, th so there's hope, they say, when the body is turned back to the earth, you know, that means you go one with God then as you were before in form of a soul. So there is hope in this message. At the same time, there is also a kind of a renewal. So in our tradition, we, in the Buddhist tradition, we're always talking about impermanence. We're always talking about the, the understanding that we're not going to be here forever. Um, in our my own specific tradition of Jodo Shinshu, we have something in our tradition uh, called Shotsuki Hoyo. It's a monthly memorial. Our temple's been around for 117 years. So everyone that died in January, this it always happens on the second Sunday of every month, so was when Shotsuki Hoyo is. So on January, everyone who's passed in January, we read their names and dedicate that service. Every month we do that. In addition to all the different um, rituals involving the death process. process. So I, I agree with Mark that there's, we don't have a manual on how to do it, but really just being present to, to it and talking about it and allowing, I, I think these rituals allow people to come together. Um, we, we see people who on these monthly memorials, the whole family will come together when their grandma or grandpa or uncle or brother or sister has passed. And it's an opportunity for the whole family to come together. And then they'll all go out to lunch afterwards. Or it's just this really beautiful way to gather and talk about death and acknowledge and remember and um, share. And so um, I, don't, I don't think grief necessarily ever ends when there's someone that's very... Like, I don't know if my, the grief around my dad, I still feel that loss. I'll probably always feel that loss. But I also feel the joy and the love when I can share that with my family and recall his teachings, what I've learned and how I've been touched by him. 
Wow, I knew Judaism and Buddhism had a lot in common, but that you talk and then go out to eat. Boy, it's the same thing. <laughs> Our tradition has a, a person, it's interesting, on Friday night we have joy of Shabbat. We welcome in the Sabbath on Friday night. But at the end of the service, we also have what's called the Kaddish. And we read the names of anyone who died in that last week uh, or that last month or the, it was the anniversary of that death. We do that every, every Friday night or, and Saturday. And people call it names. And they come, many people specifically, to say Kaddish, a prayer that they, with their intention, they're honoring the memory of their loved ones. Uh, and they're and they're thanking God for their life. So we do that kind of honoring, and it's built into actually, you know, almost every Jewish service. We try to teach our kids about grief they, uh, and loss. We do class at the Jewish funeral home, uh, Mount Sinai Chapel down the street. And um, we also really try to teach that there are stages to grieving, and a Jewish goal is to help the family go back into life. And actually, we're interested in making a transition from grieving to remembering and to honoring the memory and helping uh, that person's memory live on in the good that we do. Do you guys see the movie Coco? Yeah, it's about Mexican uh, uh, Day of the Dead and stuff. There, there are a lot of Jewish writers on that movie. <laughs> And there's a, you know, a lot of that idea of how do we live on. We don't want to turn ourselves into permanent grievers. Uh, th and, and there's a certain time we're supposed to stop mourning and stop going to the cemetery all the time and, and go on a date to, and be in life. And that, so that's an interesting thing to honor and then live. Next question. So it, how long is the period of, of, of loss? Well, let's hear from the others, and I'll come back to me. How long is the period of loss that you do grieving for? How long is the period of mourning? Yes. Well, I mean, um, in Islamic tradition, it should not be more than three days. Celebrating life is much more positive, you know, and, and God-loving, because God loves life. God does not love death. It, death is the transition only of the body, but the soul comes back to God, right? So, not more than three days. And once when the person, uh, you know, dies, permission is given to the wife or the husband to remarry. Um, I come from India. In the Hindu tradition, the women would never marry, and they, in the olden tradition, they would just put themselves into a fire. And, and they would also burn, and their ashes will be one with the husband. But because, I mean, I have lived in that part of the world which has got so many different traditions, I mean, in short, life should be celebrated. You know, life should not be mourned. Mourning is not more than three days, that's it. Yeah, I, uh, we, we've, in the Christian tradition, we've had various things borrowing um, from the Jewish tradition, others, you know, a month's mind, or uh, even at my church, thank God we have a computer to keep track of uh, uh, anniversaries of death, we try to remember, and um, 
I mean, just just today, this morning at morning prayer, I heard the name of a guy who died, you know, six years ago who used to live in the Tenderloin and had a rough time and was a character, and it was just great to hear his name again. He was very alive to me again. And um, the joy and the sadness uh, all came again. So, uh, you know, love never ends, we say in our scriptures. I, I think I loved what you said about grief. In a way, it's not so raw and and uh, myopic, but grief is a form of love, you know. Yeah, in our tradition, we don't put a, a timeline on it because it is, it's a process. It's a process where, and I think we actually have to describe, uh, define um, so that we're all speaking the same language what, what grief and um, sure. that is because it's a very fine line at some point between like this profound sadness and profound gratitude. Mm. And so what I'm finding in these monthly memorials and through this, the rituals that we have at some point, there's a, a shift where gratitude mm. really starts to open our hearts again. Maybe initially we close, we close because it's so painful, but if we just sit with that and we're surrounded by people that we love and that love us, that there's, there's an opening there where that, that grief that sad, or I won't say that sadness becomes gratitude. Beautiful. We um, we make distinctions based on who died, which is interesting. So if it's a parent, it's eleven months. Uh, if it's a uh, a spouse or a child, actually, the formal limitation on behavior. So grieving is a technical term, actually, in Judaism, where you're not supposed to do certain things. It's actually only thirty days. Um, and maybe that was connected to, God, I've got four kids and I, I need a partner. You know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, most people engage over months in different levels, but, but the parent is really 11 months. Next question or dialogue? Yeah. Get you the microphone. Thanks. Um, regarding Jodo Shinshu, I was just curious if you had any sense about what percentage of practitioners it's important that when they die they go to the pure land, or if that's just a doctrinal thing that most the average practitioners don't worry much about. Yeah, the the the, the pure land in which uh, the pure land sutras, is which our our tradition is rooted in, um, can be looked at a lot of different ways. The the pure land is this um, is is nirvana. It's another pure land's another name for nirvana, um, for awakening. And it could be argued that we experience the, we could it, the pure lands here and now if we choose to see it. That every moment we have these little aha moments, these little uh, opportunities of, of awakening. So um, for me personally, the pure land is not some concrete place out there. Pure land's in here. So I wonder if the other partners here could talk about a bit of your tradition's perspective about afterlife. Afterlife? Yeah. Well, again, uh, it depends upon whom you ask, because since I told you there are many different traditions, right? Uh, the school of thought. Some people really believe that if a youth of 16, 17 dies, his desires have not been fulfilled. He had yearned to be with his lover. Didn't get a chance. Wanted to make money, build a house, have a family, didn't get a chance. 
why would God take away that child without fulfilling the desires, the kosher desires of the child? Then it says, one tradition says, those desires will give, the birth will be there, and the child will have that kind of a desire fulfilled. Now you come to my age of 76, I've been through that stage. And my, you know, my desires of being in heaven is to just be one with God. Yeah? Just being one with God. Because I've gone through the process of, of a 16-year-old, or 25, or 30, 40, 50, 60. Right now, you know, physically I'm getting weak. I'm, I'm not able to do whatever I can before. So, according to whatever age you die, God will fulfill your desires. Nice, kosher, clean desires. Are you going to be kosher too, Reverend? <laughs> um, you know, I think you have it here at the synagogue, and we have it in churches, where you have the Bible, and then you have the children's Bible, you know? With, maybe other traditions don't do that, but we do that. So, as far as death and the afterlife, our Bible defaults to children's Bible. What do I mean? Um, we just have these little pictures. In my father's house, there are many rooms, and I go to prepare one for you. Um, heaven's um, a, a golden Jerusalem with the river of life. And um, heaven is a, a picnic in Napa with the good shepherd. And, um, uh, you know, they have these just these images. And, and even talking about Jesus' new life after death, it's, it's pretty sketchy on details. And in fact, in one of our other writings, the first letter of John, it says, you know, um, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. So, you know, get over it. You know, we will be united with God. Then he owns that. But the details are pretty weak. So, um, and I, I, I'm... Maybe I'm scared, but I'm not big on rewards and punishments uh, after life. I, I just, uh, I can't envision that God anymore. Uh, so I'm more concerned about consequences of actions in this life. Wonderful. Uh, Jews also are all over the place. So if you open up the first five books of the, the Bible, which we call the Torah, there really isn't discussion about afterlife. There are talking about, um, and his, he went to sleep with his father's Sheola in Sheol. And, and it seems to be down below. It's, it's just not clear. And it's later on in the rabbinic period, the people who wrote that Talmud, that they talk about Olam Haba, the world to come. And the idea that maybe there is something afterwards as people start to long for, you know, what understanding around what happens next and maybe righting wrongs from this world. Um, but there's never a real commitment to it. The Judaism really focuses on living in this world. And in fact, mystical Judaism takes the word olam haba, the world to come, and flips it and says, it's the world that's coming at you. And, and it asks the question, maybe we don't realize that we never left the Garden of Eden, that we're still in it, but we kicked God out. 
And it's a really interesting uh, perspective. Um, uh, most Jews today talk about living on in the good that they did. And then the mystical tradition does talk about reincarnation, that maybe we, our aspects of ourselves are brought forward again. And then there is a tradition that, that talks about maybe in the messianic age, there'll be mechaye hametim, uh, which is this idea of the revival of the dead, that, that there'll be a one coming together when there's real true peace in the world. Um, I first started out as a rabbi, I think I did my second funeral, and somebody gave me a little sack that was so carefully tied up with earth in it, and I had no idea what it was. And they explained it was earth from Jerusalem that's buried with the body so that uh, in the time of Mecha Metim uh, and the revival of the dead, that they have to bore through the earth to uh, uh, get to Jerusalem. And that the earth, this little earth will help guide them around the right way. I thought two things. A, if that's really going to happen, why do they need directions? And B, wow, my ancestors invented the flashlight. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think some of these things come in, as you've said, from different traditions, from the folk tradition versus the rational, religious, spiritual, intellectual traditions that each of these traditions represent. And around death and, and fear, boy, a lot of folk stuff does come back in. But I think we're hearing a lot of great things about what the real traditions teach that can help us. Next questions, yeah. Um, I would like to ask all four of the panel their views of suicide. If a loved one has committed suicide, whether they've been in excessive pain or something in their life has not worked and, and how obviously taking your life is not a good thing. But do you bury, do you still bury the bodies and bring them? I know in my former faith, they don't allow the body in the church. So that's why I'm curious. Wow, great questions. I'll go first this time. Judaism's evolved as it recognizes mental illness as a, an illness that's, that, that's part of God's creation and that we have to struggle with and deal with. And so that... Uh, the idea, there used to be an idea that if someone committed suicide, they were buried in a different part of the cemetery. And that's very painful. Um, but I, I've never seen that in my career. You know, the rabbis before, it's, it, we've really evolved and changed and see uh, mental illness as being equal to any other illness in life. And depression, that's, you know, we all know now how hard it is for us to deal with depression today. Um, so in, in Buddhism, there's, basically we all want to be happy and we all want to be free of our suffering. How we do that? Big spectrum. Right? Some of us do it in really healthy ways with do, given the causes and conditions that we have at our disposal. So there's so many mental illness, so many different causes and conditions. In, in Buddhism, actually the very first um, funeral I did was for someone who had committed suicide and they were from another tradition like not a Buddhist tradition, but they weren't able to have the the funeral. And so they, they came to our temple. And that was the first tradition I did. There's no there's no doctrine, there's no other than that it causes a lot of pain for the people that you love. But you know, there's no judgment. A loss is a loss. And so our job 
is to make sure that the family members and friends are supported and, and to walk alongside them through this transition that they're experiencing. Ditto. But suicide is not permissible in Islamic faith at all. I mean, that law is very, very, very clear. Okay, second thing, you're asked to find out why did the person do that. I mean, I know some cases you know, back home when a girl is asked to marry a certain guy and she doesn't want to marry. And that she goes to pain and suffering and a lot of mental tension. Say, no, I don't want to be with that guy. I would rather kill myself. So, you know, if oppression is something deep-rooted, you know, then you're asked to bring that out so that the society also learns from that. I mean, this is important. Um, just like what Rabbi said, mental illness is a part that is recognized. And we also take the condition under which that person went through that extreme action of taking the life and whose fault it is, you know, and why is it. And, so the, and the society needs to correct itself. So it is also a point of relearning or educating, you know, that such kind of actions are not permissible and you have to look at the reasons why. Wow, good questions, hard questions. So, Could more I, things? Oh, yes. Oh, you first. Oh, I went first. Okay. Um, th this is a little humorous and it's not about suicide, but it's about desiring death when it's appropriate. Um, Oh gosh, change the names to protect the guilty. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, priest, wonderful, uh, spectacular, um, but tended to be an academic. He wasn't a great pastor. So sometimes if someone had to be seen in the hospital, he'd grab one of us to go with him. So th there was a grand dame of the local Episcopal church, an English woman, and she was in the hospital and she was well known. And um, so my academic colleague came and he was trying to be pastoral. And he said, now, Anna, if there's one thing you would ask at this point, what would it be? And she said, a spectacular heart attack. And, and my colleague, who's kind of afraid of death and all this stuff, just, he was lost. And I said, you go, Anna, you know, be real, you know. So, um, you know, death is, if we let it, can be a great bullion of realism back in our inflated, goofed-up lives. And uh, e even if it is a very tragic death of a very young person who never fulfilled their life, or, or of a tragic death of a suicide or, or anything like that, it, it just lets us know um, life is full of amazement and awe, or however you said it so beautifully. Um, and at the same time, it, it's flawed, and, and pain is part of the thing that makes us human and, and draws us together in bonds of love and support. Well, you made me think when we th um, want that instant loss to go and have no pain, just to go, right? That sometimes it's interesting, I do think about there being a blessing of knowing that you're dying and, and being able to give your last blessings or words 
that you have a responsibility to actually help those who are going to mourn you. And there's a custom uh, uh, um, of writing an ethical will. You know, one thing we hope as you reimagine death is, have you taken care of your responsibilities? Do you have a will? Do you have a trust or things like that? Are you really being thoughtful and not just leaving it all to the cat? <laughs> um, but that you don't just look at your life as money. And there's this practice of writing a, a last letter, a blessing to your families. And there's a, a guest staying in my house, part of the conference. Her name's Rabbi Alana Zaman. And she's written a book called The Last Letter. And part of that comes from uh, the ethical will tradition. So I don't know if, that's, if that exists in your traditions as well. This, what do you feel is the responsibility of the dying person as we reimagine death? I would say from a Buddhist perspective, the responsibility is to communicate what you want, what your needs are. So I teach uh, the, uh, as Rabbi mentioned, the essentials of Buddhism, and then I teach a second uh, Buddhist uh, essentials, or the essence of Buddhism too, and that's workshops. And one of the workshops is all around death. And there's these um, active, interactive um, activities we do, and then we just have a dialogue of people just sharing what, what their perfect end of death experience is. How do they want to die? And, and, and then I invite them to write that down. And once they've written, they've detailed how they want to die, I invite them to make copies and give it to their loved ones. So that we have this discussion, so people, so that your kids know and your, your relatives know how you want to be buried. Because this, as I said, impermanence is such a profound part of our teaching. And it, it's just not for the receiver, it's the giver, it's each of us acknowledging that we're not going to be here forever. And, and, and Mark's joke reminded me of a Buddhist joke that we have. Why did the Buddhist coroner uh, get fired? Why? Be thank you. Uh, because, um, because on the death, uh, under cause of death, he was al always putting birth. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Do you want to respond either? No? Wonderful. Yeah. So the question is, we, uh, the Jewish tradition, what's the significance of the shroud? Often it's called a kittle. And again, when somebody asked about, well, how do we deal with death and teach about it in life? It's a thing you would get married in. Traditional Jews get married in this kittle. So their death is even present there. And we wear it on Yom Kippur. It's the holiest day of the year. And it's a year where you actually connect with the non-physical, and you anticipate dying and hoping to be in life. And so you'll wear this very simple white thing that I think argues that we, uh, we end, end our material self and we leave the material behind. And so to have this simple thing that we are going to be buried in rather than, you know, a $1,200 suit or something, that, that, that we're going to go back into that earth. And Judaism argues for returning to nature. And so, um, how, how did Americans get buried in the 1800s? Anyone see the Clint, all the Clint Eastwood movies? I love those fistful of daughters, the dollars, the spaghetti westerns, and the guys making the wooden casket, right? And it's a wooden casket, and you put the body in, and you bury it. And that, that's basically been American Jewish practice. When did Americans start embalming? 
not to Lincoln. When Lincoln died and they dressed him up and they embalmed him so they could do a train around the country, everyone said, well, if it's good enough for the president, it's good enough for me. And I think the issues of, of chemicals and all that stuff in the earth, I like that Judaism has tried to hold on to that natural way. And actually, I was so moved. I was a rabbinic student. I was in Israel, and I was living with this landlady who just hated me. But her mother died, and, and she was anti-religious, but I was going to be a rabbi, so she brought me to the funeral. And she really hated the funeral guys more, because they were ultra-religious. And, and they brought her a mother out in a shroud, and no casket. And, and I started, when I started a cemetery in Seattle, I made a a uh, cemetery where you could be buried without a casket and without uh, any kind of a uh, cement uh, cover, but that you could really be in the earth. And that image that is not sold to Judaism, it was all over, of natural burial, I think is really powerful. Any other responses? Well, I will give you two examples. The king or the founder of Saudi Arabia, Abdul Aziz, he was the most powerful man of his time, the richest man, but he will, that when he dies, his body should be laid bare in the sand. And there should be nothing at all to say that he's buried over here. That's one example. He had all the means to, you know, to construct the Taj Mahal. Then there's another example of a king building a Taj Mahal for his beloved wife. You see the variation? I mean, that is the kind of Islam that I know of because it spread from so, I mean, from the desert into India, into far off, and it started picking up the tradition of, the, of those places. And it became a sign of architecture, you know. Look at the beautiful mausoleum, right? So, I mean, there are, there are kind of a various factions. You had a question, yeah. Well, this part is very, very clear in all traditions, I mean, in, in Islam. You read the Quran, and then in the name of the word of God, you bless the person who has died, asking for forgiveness of the sins. That is there in every tradition, fundamentalist or just very modernized tradition too. You go you know, in the mosque, you sit down and read the Quran, and you give a lot of money in charity. If the person has left over some wealth, half the money goes specially to charity. So that that will also wash out some of the sins of that person who's passed away, you know. So thank you for asking that. But this is consistent all over the Islamic world. In our tradition, we try to linger with uh, the person who has died um, with the family and we have prayers for the time of death. Um, there's a prayer for receiving the body into the church. Uh, there's a, prayers, of course, for the funeral service and then prayers at the committal. Um, 
when my mom died in Chicago in the hospital, I said, um, you know, we did all, all the stuff, and I said, when you come to take her body away, because I like the old village customs where you don't abandon the body, you know, you, you, you're with, you know, the whole time. But, you know, so I said, when it's time to take the body away, let us know we want to say prayers. Well, they misheard that, that we want to just sit here with the body. So it's one hour, two hours, the sun setting. I finally said, well, what, are you going to take, what's, oh, oh, do you know what happens? I said, yeah, you come in in a cart and you put her body in a black plastic bag and you carry her out and we want to pray while you do that. Oh, oh, oh. Like, we wanted to witness that and accompany that at least in a symbolic way. And, and I want to encourage everyone to find ways into the system, which is well-meaning, but, but it doesn't serve us well to uh, honor your loved one at every stage of what happens. And so, you know, we have some prayers, but again, I think in mainline Christianity, we've lost a lot of these wonderful rituals. So we have, as I was saying earlier, the pillow service, which could be uh, as someone is dying or right after death. Uh, most oftentimes the pillow service happens immediately after someone dies and we get the call to come to the home and um, we recite sutra chanting. Um, again, a, a Dharma talk, but really what I find with the pillow service is just an opportunity. I, I do my ritual, but then the family starts sharing and starts talking and sharing stories. And then, even though this doesn't really sound like a ritual, I, I think it's so important, then the family comes in, and, or we, we go to their home, and they start planning the, the funeral with us. Like they're active, they don't just say, I need a funeral, and they show up. We're very engaged with it. They, they are planning the funeral. We, we, we'll give them guidelines, or whatever they want, or, or not. Um, and then the day, then there's the funeral, and then we continue to have memorials and um, reminders, and, and we're grateful for the computer as well to keep everything in tra on track. But um, yeah, that's this idea of a memorial of, of chanting sutras. Again, it's not so much for it's not for the person who's passed because we believe in cause and effect, right? The karma that you, the goodness, the karma that you've created in your lifetime, the goodness. The compassion, that's what's going to live on in everyone's minds and hearts. So what we're really doing these services for are the people that are still alive, still here. Um, yeah. Could you guys address uh, organ donation from your traditions? Yeah. I mean, this is a new science, right? I mean, it wasn't there in the 19th century. Even in the 20th, I mean, as science advances, you know, then we call the ulema, this means the holy people, right? Who are expert on the, on the Quran, they get to, they got together. And there's again, over here, majority of them said, you can donate the organ to let other people survive. Majority of them have said that. But some of them who are really very, very traditional, they say, no, the body should not be dismembered, you know. In short, 
no prohibition about organ donation. It might even be encouraged. You know, it's a last wonderful life-giving act. Uh, no prohibition about cremation either. No prohibition either. And in fact, I, I remember uh, I was called to a San Francisco general. Uh, a young girl had um, had o had overdosed, and they were about to turn all the machines off. And her parents were there, and they were Buddhist. Um, and and I was able to use a Buddhist teaching of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is is uh, a sentient being who continues to do who, who does good work for the the sake of others. And so I was able to say to them, oh, your daughter's a bodhisattva. Like it didn't matter that she had this, how she got there in that bed was really difficult for the family, but they took refuge and comfort in knowing, oh, my daughter's a bodhisattva. She's gonna be donating all these parts to help other people, to, to relieve them of their suffering. And so I actually think our teachings uh, support that. Other folks, yes. So um, I'd like to ask all of you uh, how you're dealing with societal grief um, in terms of the mass shootings and the police violence against African Americans and also the loss of life due to um, climate change, the loss of uh, species. Because I, you know, I know that that's something that I deal with and a lot of people that I know deal with a lot of sadness on a daily basis you know, because of, of the state of the world that we're living in. Easy one, take it. I mean, yeah, sometimes I remember at Columbine, we actually had something on the front of the church because it was, I think it happened on a Friday or something. And um, well, that's a zillion shootings ago. And uh, so we tried to acknowledge each one by having moments of prayer and um, lament and uh, call to action. We, we've recently, actually at Grace Cathedral, we have a small altar for victims of gun violence and for a change. So you can go there and write a prayer and it's just for that. Well, mass shooting, I would also like to add a word called mass killing. You know, this is nothing new. It was there for centuries, you know. There used to be wars, there used to be killing, when the early settlers came, the Indians who were living over here, they faced you know, some mass, mass killing and shooting too. So this is not a new phenomenon, but I'm glad you asked because it is grief, it is done in a, in a wrong way, and deep in your heart you have to bring some better values for the society. The real cause, they say, is something up over there in the head. You have to educate, you know. I mean, that's what, I mean, I as a reformed Muslim thinks about it. It can be changed. You're not, I mean, you know, you're not made to do those things. So we talk about it. We have Dharma teach sermons around it. We have uh, uh, um, when Orlando happened, we had happened. It was just actually the week before our annual LGBTQ service, so we created this whole altar and this really beautiful ritual. Um, 
we also, it, it, there, I don't know if you've heard the term of engaged Buddhism, is that I, I challenge, we challenge people to just not sit back and do nothing, or else nothing's going to happen. So the, the, the massacre before last, I remember being up in Sebastopol at the temple there and saying, if you don't do anything differently than what you're doing right now, this is going to happen again. We have to do something differently. And so this idea of engaged Buddhism, of, of trying to uh, be civically engaged in what's going on is pretty important. Martin Buber, who was a uh, rabbinic teacher and who inspired other religious traditions, he argued that we live too much in the world of it, of seeing animals, people around us only as it, as things to be used or abused. But that we're supposed to, in a healthy way, go between the it and the thou, and seeing, seeing the holy in everybody, and, and seeing the holy in the differences between us. And to me, one of the things that we have to reimagine is, I think, reimagining what religion can give us. That to me, having a spiritual religious life as a Reformed Jew or Muslim or Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, is to see, help see the thou in life. And too often we blame uh, isms uh, for what's happening out there when it's really the will to power and the will to see things in it and you're using the ism as a cover. But the essentials of these isms, they're trying to get us to see the thou. And that's true when we have loss. And it's true when we try to make the joy sweeter. I hate it that families you know, don't know how to celebrate or have dinner together or, or acknowledge holy moments. So I'd say that this reimagine goes further on to looking at how your life is integrated and how, whether it's a religious path of the holy or in nature or in community, that you start to see more of the thou out there. Because religion's not the only path, but that's what we're trying to give. Yes. And, and I'm going to go 10 more minutes, is that right? That's okay, I'm not boring people yet? Okay, good. I'm wondering what words, if any, you might have for my atheist friend Tim about death and dying, or to put it a different way, how does one reconcile death if they don't have a belief system about it? Well, what do you mean by you don't have a belief system? I'm an atheist. I, Tim would say that religion is uh, stupid and illogical and ashes to ashes and dust to dust. But it does give me a salary. I'm sorry? <laughs> <laughs> if, well, does Tim need to be spoken to? I mean, if Tim is comfortable in his belief then I would respect Tim's belief. If Tim is looking for something, send him over. I think we could address uh, his, his concerns. Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. If religion has been damaging to you or is fearful or perceived to be toxic, then don't go there. But if you're attracted to it, I would say check some places out, and the minute it doesn't feel safe, follow the lights on the, crawl your way out and get out. But, um, yeah, if he's not interested, he's not interested. 
related to this, I, I just, it's a little plug. I, I mentioned this book about the Christian funeral by Thomas Long. Ten years ago, Thomas Long did an op-ed in the New York Times addressed to a general audience about how we manage death as a society. So I made just enough copies here. And in the old days, you wrote the New York Times and you asked for permission to read. I, I couldn't find an address. I think maybe they gave up. But pay for the New York Times online. But meanwhile, I have these pirated copies that I'll bring out. I, too, broke the copyright laws, and they're out there on the table for you to see Jewish approaches. I, I'll jump in. I think, you know, I think religion is so beautiful. And to get people to take a second look at it, and if I weren't a rabbi or Jewish, I'd seek out one of the other traditions to bring that music to my life. Not everybody's going to need it. But boy, be careful about what we're throwing away. And I don't think the world's doing so well right now in its extreme secularism and consumerism. Uh, that, that, that I do think we're alienated from nature, as the woman who asked about the animal question. You know, how do we look at value? And boy, I like Jefferson's religion. Right? I, there, there was inspired and imbued with religious beauty. I'd like to claim as a Jew, but I can't. I'll just enjoy what he taught me. I think these religions have a lot to share. So um, I hope that we reimagine a little bit. But we as religious leaders have a lot to do to make sure that they're welcoming and engaging and they're not boring and they're real. And that's our job. Next question. I'll come down to you. So you spoke a little bit about the sort of the uh, significance of the physical body. I guess there's a sense as also in Buddhist tradition of like attachment and non-attachment, I guess. And so I wonder what you guys think about like the idea of grief and that sense of sadness connected with attachment. And perhaps you shouldn't like have that much attachment um, towards your own physical body and people around you which then may reduce that sense of sadness, I guess. So I wonder what the thoughts are on that. So for us, your body is a reflection of the image of God. And that male and female, our female masculine selves, our colors, all that, that's a, 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 a fantastic reflection. And, and I would say that we see uh, grief as, as a natural. Yet we acknowledge that people grieve differently. So some people will cry at a funeral, and some people won't. And there's not a right way of grieving. Right. Our tradition has you tear a garment, right? They, we, in the old world, you tore a garment. The garment was really valuable. That was a really big deal. Today, we have everyone tear a ribbon. It's kind of ironic that our garments are cheap, but we, we, tear, we tear the ribbon instead. And, uh, uh, and it's just a way of showing your mourning. When my dad died, I was 14. I was in shock. I didn't cry at all. Two weeks later, when I went to do something that I knew he would tell me I was doing wrong, then I grieved. So I can't control when it happens. Yeah. That is a great question. And I think psychological health, emotional health, and religious truth is usually dialectic. It's usually both and. And I'm a middle child and a Gemini, so this comes easy for me. But it doesn't come easy for everybody. Both and. Grief and um, relief. Um, 
sadness and gratitude. Um, uh, I was born into a sad household. The child before me died at one month old. This is the 1950s. And um, when my parents went to the hospital the last time when they were called and they kind of knew, um, the nurse said to my mother, now don't you cry when you go in there. So my mother stuffed her grief and that doesn't work. And, and in fact, they buried the baby without a tombstone. And we corrected that after a lot of therapy and a lot of thought. And, um, but, but this is what happened. At Grace Cathedral, one time I was called for a family because they had to take their two-year-old off a respirator. And, um, and so that, uh, we encouraged the family to have a funeral and to have the body present in a small casket. We just thought, that was going to be the best for them and for us. And they did that. And that mother wailed and lamented. And she's got two more kids now, and they live great. And she probably thinks of that child every day, grief. But um, they were willing to face it with the community's help. And um, so... I don't think it's good to stuff away your grief. It's not good to live in that land forever, to use whatever you need to help you get on without dishonoring. That love will always be with you. I mean, even it happens after a divorce or a breakup. You know, you don't suddenly stop loving someone. I mean, there's... Um, you're going to get the last word. Wow. All right, let's make it count. Um, there's this phrase, everything happens for a reason. And often when like a tragedy occurs, you kind of question that and say like, why, why would that happen? You know, why would, why would someone pass away at such a young age? So I'm wondering how you guys see that, um, if, if, if everything's according to a divine, you know, divine plan or if sometimes, you know, tragedies occur and, and maybe there's just no plan about it. Well, I'll give you two examples over here, because I know of my nephew, he went to Yosemite, he was sitting over there, his legs slipped, and he got carried away by the waters, and he died, right? So this is something. And now another case was this, a person was there with a, you know, a Muslim people that, in, okay, the women wear the hijab, right? And now she was just shot point blank in Fremont. So now these are the two types of, of killing. One is motivated by unwanted hatred. Another happened to be an accident. But the grief is there, you know, on, on both sides. How can I explain to them? I, I mean, I cannot explain to the person who is really feeling that, the children of that mother, you know, the husband, you know, I mean, how do you explain that, right? She was taking the child to the school and, you know, somebody comes and shoots because she's a Muslim and she's wearing that kind of a thing. So that kind of a hatred thing, you need to educate the society, really. And accidents do happen, and that's sad. But again, you know, for 
peace of mind, you go back to your, your scriptures, just like the Jews and the Christian, you know. You go to the mosque, you pray, ask for forgiveness, and give some money in charity in their name. And that's the way that it soothes the people who are surviving. Because to survive, the people who are surviving, they need to be satisfied. Those who are gone, they are gone, right? Thank you. Yeah, I think that everything happens for a reason. That's out there in the culture. But I think religious practitioners are kind of responsible for there's a reason for everything, giving explanation. When some things are just to be born and to be lived through, and that's why we have rituals to help people come together and deal with it. Like um, the great rabbi uh, Edwin Friedman, the... Uh, family systems, he says there's two dials and one dial is the distress, tragedy thing and we don't have control over that but there's another dial which is our reactivity to it and we can sometimes do something with that dial does that make sense and again it's not saying there's a reason for everything, most of our traditions at least in our tradition says um, the divine will accompany you through this mysterious, horrible mess, this bottomless pit of pain, and, and, and will help you find that you can survive this and um, with the help of others. And, and grace builds on nature. I, I mean, with the help of others and with a, a faith tradition, or words of comfort from sacred writings or music or dance or remember after 9-11 about four days after when the mayor of Philadelphia or Baltimore said get out of your homes all the museums are open for free everything um, just let's come back to life as a city you know it doesn't take away the grief or give an explanation but these things can work together both and so uh, that idea of causes and conditions in Buddhism, cause and effect. But do I know? I, I, I'm not a. I don't. I. I don't have. A, I'm not omniscient. So I don't know all the causes and conditions of why something happens. Um, so the idea is to just be present and to accompany people in their grief or what they're going through without giving them an answer of why this happens. I don't know. And just to actually address the gentleman in the back that asked about uh, attachment to body, um, I would actually peel it back even deeper to say that it's an attachment to our identity. And once we've come and really dealt with our attachment to body, to our identity, that encompasses our body, our, our way of thinking, our this sense of self, that includes the body, then we can transcend and really... Um, embrace that next transition in our life that we often call death. I think God's too busy to have reason around me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a spiritual Maimonidean. Maimonides was a spiritual rationalist very much enriched by the Islamic tradition that he lived in. And he argued that, wow, God is all around you, will accompany you. It's about your awareness of it. And that religiosity or spirituality helps you be aware of the holiness in every moment, uh, including the last moments. 
I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk about those last moments, you guys, right here today. And I was wondering if each of you could share one prayer word from your tradition to conclude. And I'll make our bima a better bima, this place. Okay, I'll just say a short prayer in Arabic, then I'll translate that. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam hayyana rabbana bis-salam watkhilna dar-salam tabarakta yazal jalali wa ikram All that it means is that, O oh God, you are peace. You are love. Give us peace and plant love in our hearts. Show us a life that leads to you in a peaceful and loving way. Amen. Amen. One of the prayers we say in the Episcopal Church is, into your hands, O merciful Savior, we commend your servant, Mark. Acknowledge we humbly beseech you, a sheep of your own flock, a lamb of your own redeem, a lamb, oops, a sinner of your own redeeming. Um, uh, re receive him into the arms of your mercy, into the blessed everlasting rest with the saints forever. Amen. So one of the things that we say in our tradition, actually it's, it's the primary practice of our tradition is namo amidabutsu. And you'll hear that uttered throughout the services, throughout anyone, our life, if you're, if you're standing next to us. And it simply means, I take refuge in the boundless wisdom and compassion that supports and sustains me always, whether I acknowledge it, whether I see it, whether I ignore it, it's there. Our last words to someone are supposed to be the words that we also say in every service. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is, Adonai is one. We are all one. Thank you for coming tonight, everybody.